Well, primarily, I would make the case that we live in a modern democracy, and to build a modern democracy, you need to include everybody. People on the internet are very keen to count young people's votes at elections, but they seem to be very also keen to discount their voices when they want to make a difference to their communities. That was Angus activist Lloyd Melville, who sparked outrage on Twitter this week by announcing he is both young and standing for public office. Perish the thought. We'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello, and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Derek Healy, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Rachel Amory and Callum Ross to examine and explain the past week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, compiled and read by Morag Lindsay. Deputy First Minister John Swinney has warned Storm Eunice will bring a risk of snow and strong winds across most of Scotland and a danger of coastal flooding. It follows gales from Storm Dudley that caused significant disruption to rail and ferry services, with trees blown onto train tracks and overhead power lines. Scottish Mountain Rescue has warned there is a risk of dangerous conditions, including the possibility of avalanches. Disgraced former SNP Finance Secretary Derek Mackay has set up his own consultancy firm two years after he resigned for pestering a 16-year-old boy with texts. The business is described as a management consultancy for activities other than financial management. Under the Scottish Government's ministerial code, former Cabinet Secretaries are not allowed to take up lobbying roles for two years after they resign. Mr Mackay's new firm has been registered almost exactly two years on from when he was forced to quit. Most people in Scotland support reform of the Gender Recognition Act, but are not heavily involved in the debate around the issue, a new poll suggests. A study by Savanta Comres for the BBC found 57% of 2038 respondents support the idea of making it easier to acquire a gender recognition certificate for people who identify as transgender. Just one in five people opposed the idea, the poll shows, while 18% said they had no opinion and 5% don't know. Thanks, Morag. Now let's turn our attention to what's been happening closer to home. We started off the week with a visit from the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and Callum, you met up with him for a chat in Resyth. He had some pretty interesting things to say about the North Sea oil and gas industry and the possibility of a green free port coming to the North East. Can you take us through what happened? Yeah, that's uh, right, Derek. I mean, I think it's always important to put these kind of things in a bit of context first, isn't it? I mean, n- normally you'd think Boris Johnson probably dreads his trips to Scotland uh, a bit. He's uh, he's known to be extremely unpopular here, and any gaffes he makes kind of, you know, they have the potential to really undermine his party in Scotland and and the uh, unionist cause. Um, but given you know what's been going on at Westminster of late, um, the scandal and the police investigation into allegations of, of parties and gatherings which um, uh, allegedly broke the government's own COVID rules, um, I think a wee break in Scotland this week uh, probably would have been quite welcome f- for the PM. It was supposed to be the first stop in what was, um, uh, or it was the first stop in what was billed as, as a levelling up tour of the UK. Um, he travelled to Resyth Shipyard in Fife where he saw the latest work on uh, the Royal Navy's Type 31 frigate programme uh, and as you mentioned this happened on the day that um, it was announced that the UK and Scottish governments had reached a deal uh, to kind of pave the way for uh, two green free ports to be created in Scotland. This kind of ended months of wrangling and bickering between the two governments uh, on that scheme. 
I, I was one of the few journalists that got in to uh, see him uh, when he was in Scotland, and I, I, I did get a few minutes to ask him some questions too. You know, I find him relatively focused, to be honest, compared to the Boris Johnson we see on TV from time to time. He didn't make any major gaffes during this trip. He was pretty careful in terms of what he said about Scotland's future in the UK. I got the impression when I asked him about it that he didn't really want to get into that too much. Um, he was full of praise for Douglas Ross, despite the Scottish Conservative leader having called on the PM to resign recently over, over the Partygate allegations. And yeah, as you, as you mentioned, he, he made a point of talking up the ongoing importance of North Sea oil and gas, uh, saying everybody credible understood that the, the sector was still needed. I was going to ask him about that, but um, I didn't need to because he raised it anyway himself first. So I think the Prime Minister's handlers would have been fairly pleased with how it all went. Um, he uh, he stuck to the script, really, and got the kind of headlines uh, they would have wanted, which doesn't always happen when Boris Johnson comes to Scotland. And as you say, the, the big green Freeport's announcement coming on the same day, Resyth is considered, I think, one of the one of the front runners potentially to to get one of those free ports. Was it just a coincidence that he was he was in Resyth? Do you think? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that is another thing he kind of brought up himself. He, he he he. Without me even asking about it, he 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 said he couldn't tell me where these two uh, green free ports in Scotland were going to be, but that I could make an educated guess. Which seemed like a, a bit of an odd thing to me to say, given that the bidding process hadn't even started. But yeah, it was clearly a big vote of confidence in Rosyth. The Babcock Yard at Rosyth clearly has a very close working relationship with the Ministry of Defence uh, and the UK government already. You know, it built the aircraft carriers, the Queen Elizabeth class carriers, and it's built, building these frigates just now. So there's clearly a relationship there. And it's obvious um, that uh, Boris Johnson seemed to be... be back in Rosyth in, in some way by going there on the day this announcement was made. But the Scottish Government are supposed to have an equal say in, on who uh, where these free ports are, so we'll see what happens. Boris Johnson, eh? What a tease. Um, we spoke in the last episode of the Stushy about how the SNP pensions row felt almost like going back to that pre-referendum era. You also spoke to the chief executive of the defence giant Babcock, who said the company could move its huge fabrication yard from Rosyth to England within just a few years if it was made to feel unwelcome in an independent Scotland. We saw some pretty strong reaction to that, um, not least from the SNP's defence spokesman at Westminster. So just how real a prospect is it if Scotland votes for independence, Callum? Yeah, it's quite quite an odd one, isn't it? It's not often you interview the Prime Minister and that's overshadowed by a, another interview you do on the, the same day. It was shortly after sitting down with the PM, myself and Michael Blackley from the Mail had a, a chat with uh, David Lockwood, who's the, the chief exec of Babcock, which, as I just mentioned, you know, a huge defence company. I mean, thousands of people have been employed at Resyth in recent years. And yeah, he was he was quite candid about his uh, his views on the independence debate in Scotland, saying uh, he believed that the tone of Scottish politics does sometimes impact on inward investment from England. And on independence itself, he said it would be man- manageable for the firm, uh, but that, uh, but you know, being manageable, manageable would include relocating the Resyth facilities to England within a few years, if if necessary, if Babcock were made to feel um, unwelcome uh, in an independent Scotland. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it has opened up a bit of debate, as you say. I mean, I think in reality, as the SNP's pointed out, they would be desperate to. Um, have 
the kind of facilities you they that exist at Resyth to, you know, build a, a navy for an independent Scotland or, or or that kind that kind of thing. Um, but so yeah, I mean, it's opened a, a really interesting debate. Um, obviously, as I mentioned before, Babcock and Resyth have a very close relationship with. Uh, the Ministry of Defence and the UK government, and the chief exec, uh, Mr Lockwood, had just been touring the facility with Boris Johnson, so it's perhaps not so surprising he came out with those kind of comments. Yeah, it was interesting to see the SNP say straight away, you know, they wouldn't be unwelcome. In fact, they'd be very, very, very welcome in an independent Scotland. Um, Rachel, we've seen businesses say these kind of things before. Many business leaders expressed a view in 2014, and they did so again ahead of the Brexit vote in 2016. How much of an impact do you think those statements have on voters? I think it does depend on whether these are going to directly impact on you. So like you said, hundreds of people employed in this uh, in this company in Resyth, and obviously they will be they will be very much looking at, at the details of this because it will directly impact on them. But yes, like you said, before 2014 and before the 2016 referendums, um, there was a lot of companies saying, oh, we're going to move here, we're not going to stay, we're going to do this. And uh, so this will happen again if we do have another independence referendum next year, like Nicola Sturgeon is promising. We will see again companies saying, yes, I'm going to stay or yes, I'm going to leave. So I think this is just the start of seeing a lot more of this being brought into public debate again. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it's something we're going to hear more and more as we head into 2023 and this possible independence referendum. But for the time being, moving from one big row to another, let's talk about something that's been the subject of some debate on social media this week. Listeners may be aware that preparation for May's local council elections are already underway, with candidates putting themselves forward for selection. One candidate who caused a bit of a star was Lloyd Melville, a 21-year-old from Money Feath, who is the national convener of the SNP's student group. Lloyd wants to use his extensive experience of campaigning as well as his track record of supporting residents in a local MSP's constituency office, but he faced something of a backlash over whether he has enough life experience to serve effectively. He's not the only one, and we've seen further criticism towards some of the younger candidates putting themselves forward across the country for a range of different political parties. Our colleague Justin Bowie spoke to Lloyd about the reaction and started off by asking him for his response to the criticism. Well, primarily I would make the case that we live in a modern democracy and to build a modern democracy, you need to include everybody. Uh, People, political parties, uh, people on the internet are very keen to count young people's votes at elections, but they seem to be very also keen to discount their voices when they want to make a difference to their communities. As someone who grew up in the ward that I want to stand in, uh, I love the communities here. I use the same public services as everyone else, uh, social housing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's firsthand experiences of the services that local authorities provide. Um, And if if that doesn't count, along with my professional experience, both in the public and private sector, uh, then I don't know what does. And really what people seem to be saying is that you need to have worked one job for 40 odd years before you even get a chance to make a contribution to local democracy. And that's not something that I believe in. Do you fear that these kind of attitudes could stop young people from getting involved in politics? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, I I got it pretty rough from from certain segments, but I know people who have um, gone for uh, council before, whether that's uh, during a, a 
a national election like we're facing in May or a by-election, um, particularly young women, and they have had it a lot worse. Um, I think there is a general sense uh, among certain parts of the sort of, um, I, I would maybe call it the Twitter sphere, but it does also exist in wider society um, that young people um, just don't have what it takes for um, democracy and getting involved in, in local government. And that, that's just not the case. Uh, I think it does put people off. I think it really shouldn't put people off. Uh, because young people, we won't be patronised, we won't go away. We are here to make change, and we have a whole lot to bring to the table. There were some interesting comments from Lloyd there. But what is it actually like for a younger person when they are elected to office? Justin also spoke to Highlands and Islands MSP Emma Roddick about her experiences as a younger person working in politics. Emma is a 24-year-old and began her political career as the youngest member of the Highland Council. Justin asked her what it's been like to be an elected person at such a young age. What has your experience been as a younger person in Holyrood then? Um, well, I suppose it's difficult for me to compare because I haven't been an older person in Holyrood. Um, but um, there's definitely differences that I notice in terms of how people react to me. Um, and that's other politicians as well as the public. You know, my age tends to be brought up quite a lot in terms of you know, people looking for a way to dismiss what I'm saying, even if what I'm saying has absolutely nothing to do with how old I am. Do you, what would you say to people who dismiss younger politicians or younger people who want to get into politics and who maybe say they need more experience, they need to spend more time working normal jobs? What would you say to that? Um, I would say that, you know, politics is supposed to be representative. And I think people need to really consider what it is that they want politics to be because if you are saying look you should have more experience before going into politics are we just wanting a chamber full of people who are who their, their, their only background really is in politics because that's what we see quite a lot of and you know people talk to me about not having enough life experience or whatever I, I'm not ever really sure what they mean by that because I might have experiences that well I know I have experiences that 60 70 year old politicians in the Highlands do not have and and will never have and so we all have very different experiences and I don't think age is necessarily the only consideration and people should really be more clear about what it is that they're expecting from politicians and what we would need in order to fulfill those expectations because age is not necessarily going to be the thing that prevents you from doing what people want you to do. Do you think there are certain kind of advantages and certain things in particular that young politicians can offer that older ones maybe can't? You know, for example, having talked to councillors about this, they were saying, for example, younger people might have a better idea of what the local schooling systems are like, or they might have a better understanding of certain workplace environments. Do you think there's certain advantages to having more younger people in politics? Yeah, there definitely are. Um, I do have concerns around because the Highland Council says this as well, you know, younger people will have um, views on, on the education system. Young people have views on everything. And, you know, if you are, you know, around my age, if, if you're a late teen or early 20s, you're going to be having the experience of what it's like to look for a job in this year and this decade, to, to look for a place to live and to, you know, have grown up with internet social media, um, all these things that the other people are legislating on. 
Um, so it, it is really important that we know what it is like to grow up and to go through big life experiences in the 2020s as well as in you know the noughties or, or the 80s. What barriers do you think currently exist uh, b- besides the condescension that you sometimes get? What other barriers do you think exist to getting more younger people into politics? I think there's the, the issue of contact. You know, um, I was in in my selection up against people who had been in politics for a long time, who knew the local par- parliamentarians, um, branch members from across the region, um, and it's it's that kind of you know who you know, um, who you've campaigned with for the last forty years, um, that that sort of thing really does have a big impact on how effectively you can get your message and the the things that you're standing for over to local members who will then decide who they want to to be the SNP candidate. How do you think we go about changing that and making politics more inclusive for younger people? I think uh, making politics more inclusive for young people comes alongside making it more inclusive for everybody. Um, If politics were more accessible and people were more aware of the decisions that were being made by whom, um, which existing councillors and MSPs voted which way and what their views were, then I think we would see people being more engaged in the selection process and the election process and actually taking an interest in what individuals are standing for. Because the difference is not going to be age, the difference is going to be, well, that guy stands for a free market and she's a socialist. Like it's, it's not about, well, there's a 20-year-old against a, a 54-year-old. Do you think there's also when older people are sometimes dismissing younger politicians from your perspective, do you think there's a misogynistic element to it sometimes as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a, a young MSP. I'm also a female MSP and a disabled MSP. And I think all those together, you're going to be in for a hard time. But I see the elements of each of them very often in the way that people speak to me and in the arguments that they use to talk down what it is that I'm saying. Do you think that's something that even before you were an MSP and you've maybe just been actively involved in politics for a number of years, do you think it's something that has improved in recent years or do you think that progress is quite slow? I think progress is really slow. Um, And, you know, as you say, I I was involved in politics before last May. I was the the youngest councillor in the Highland Council. Um, So I experienced how things were there. And I don't know why I had this this um, expectation, but I thought that it was going to be better in the Scottish Parliament. I think I had uh, overestimated how how liberal the Parliament had become, and while it has demonstrated that you know we're we are ready for a far more diverse Scottish Parliament, and I think a lot of people have welcomed the election of of a number of the current MSPs. There is still a very long way to go, and I think that is the case everywhere. Do you worry that, given all that we've discussed so far, some younger people who are perhaps invested in politics at your age or at a younger age could end up being driven out when there's there's possibly decades of good work that they could be doing? They might get to 25 or 26 and decide this really isn't worth it because of the culture around it. Um, Do you think that that could end up driving possibly very talented MSPs and MPs out of work? Yeah, I, I, I don't just worry about that. I, I can see it. You know, I've I've seen that happen to people. Um, I've seen people pull out of selection contests because 
they they already can't cope with it. You know, we we lost um, a number of very talented MSPs last term because of um, family issues they were citing. They couldn't look after their kids or get enough work-life balance um, and be an MSP. We are definitely losing talent. And that's just the talent that we know about that's already been involved. Um, it's, it's completely unknowable how many people have simply not got involved in politics in the first place because of all these considerations. And I always say to young people who are thinking about getting involved, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to stand for election right away. Get involved in party politics, get involved in campaigning on issues, get involved with the third sector. There are a lot of ways to kind of, you know, dip your toe in and maybe get yourself in a place where you are confident in your views without being committed to to the kind of harassment that we've been discussing up to this point. Well, I'm about a week away from adding yet another digit onto my own age, so I'm definitely not sure I can call myself young anymore. But Rachel, I believe you're the youngest on the panel today. What did you make of what we heard there? It is definitely interesting because, like Emma just said there, the idea is that people who represent you are reflective of the society they represent. And often there is this this um, this view that it's sort of male, pale and stale. And so getting more women, getting more young people, getting more people with just different backgrounds is obviously going to be a good thing. And yeah, I, I don't know, maybe myself, if I did have an issue that I needed to take to an elected representative, if, if I had the choice between somebody who maybe was a bit in their 20s and somebody who was much older... Maybe I would go to the, the representative who's in their 20s instead over that um, older person uh, because of the similar age to me. So maybe maybe that is something I would consider. I think it's important, isn't it, to have people elected at every level who represent different sectors of society. So I think having just one age group doesn't really help. Emma touched on there the difference between you know being a, a Highland councillor and, and coming to the Scottish Parliament, which was elected at the last election. Is it a bit depressing to hear that things really aren't that much better in the Scottish Parliament? Yeah, you would hope that the the body that's running the entire country would be better, especially because, like you said, they will be representing people who are in school, who are leaving school, who are finding their first homes or their first jobs. Um, and things like that and starting families and so they are representing those people you would hope that those the considerations we brought into parliament themselves so it's, it is it is um it's not great to hear that that's not the experience that Emma Roddick has had I think when you look at um Perth and Kinross Council for example which is an, an example that I had recently something like two-thirds of their budget is spent on schools or, or children and family services I think I can definitely understand the argument that it makes sense to have at least some people who have experienced those services firsthand in the past few years deciding how they're actually being run. And of course, that same argument can also be applied for things being legislated on at Holyrood. Callum, you've been covering politics for longer than I have. Do you think we're getting a more diverse parliament or more diverse councils as time goes on? I think so, and I think hopefully there'll be more progress made in the in the, the coming election. I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying that the last election, the Western Isles Council was all men. All the councillors were, were older men. You know, you'd hope to, the, that there would be um, more progress coming. I think you made a good point there about the budgets and what they're spent on because people forget that um, councils actually make a lot of the most important and difficult decisions in politics. There's all this focus on national 
politics and personalities and stuff, but really Westminster and Holyrood pass a lot of the hardest decisions that actually affect people's lives down to councils uh, and they don't get nearly as much scrutiny or training or pay uh, the people making the decisions there than, uh, than than you get in terms of national politics. So I think it's important to bear that in mind and, and you know, give councils the, uh, the, the importance that uh, they deserve in terms of your thinking. I mean, is there an argument, though? Is there like an counter argument to this? I, I would certainly say I'm a different person to who I was when I was 21, and I've had more life experiences, different experiences. Is there any worth to that argument that, you know, people who are a bit older have maybe seen things that you don't see when you're 20, um, that that would be a better route to go down, do you think? I guess it doesn't mean that you you know more or, uh, you know, your perspective might have changed, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily a, a better perspective and that, you know, people in their their 20s still need to be represented. And uh, uh, I'm sure um, a lot of them would feel like people their own age would represent them better. I mean, that's the key word, isn't it? It's a, supposed to be a representative democracy. And uh, I think, as Rachel said, it's, uh, if, if everyone's um, pale, male and stale, then that's not uh, representative at all. It's interesting you touched on some of these sort of challenges, things like pay, for example. Um, Justin's been very busy this week and has also been speaking to Xander McDade, a Highland Perthshire councillor who, at 28 years old, intends to stand down in May. He's one of a number of younger members on Perth and Ross Council who have decided to walk after trying and failing to change the system to be more suited for working age people. Justin asked him about some of the barriers stopping young people from staying in local politics. I think this is actually one of the fundamental um, problems is the structural issues with how local government is run make it very challenging for uh, people in in of a working age in general, um, particularly those with families, um, to actually get involved in local politics and local government. Um, I've spent the last four or five years campaigning quite hard in the council on this um, to try and make it more um, fr- friendly and accessible for younger and working age people and uh, people with families. Um, I'd say I've had limited success on that front. Um, and it can be as simple as uh, the fact that meetings are held across you know, specific days rather than holding them on any day of the week at any time. Because if you're working, you need to be able to tell your employer what days you're available. Um, and uh, you know, we had a really big push at the start of this council term to try and get meetings in the evenings um, and unfortunately uh, we were outvoted by um, our older colleagues who wanted them you know first thing in the morning and you know during the day um, and that has made it harder for people um, to have uh, you know a full-time job or a part-time job even and be a councillor and be effective at it so um, and certainly in terms of the remuneration um, depending on the hours you put in, um, you know, you can be quite lucky to be, um, you know, earning sort of um, half the minimum wage if you put in a lot of hours. Uh, and it's certainly not realistic to be um, expecting uh, younger people who are perhaps trying to buy their first home to be able to buy that on the sort of um, councillors' allowances that are currently um, set at. And I think we need to be realistic either it is a very part-time role, in which case we'd need to reduce the amount of work that currently are expected of councillors, um, or we need to you know, increase that remuneration to reflect the, the level of involvement and the, the loss of income that you're going to have on the other side. 
That was Xander McDade there. Um, I should mention that we will have a special midweek episode of the Stushy coming out on Tuesday that will look specifically at this issue of young people in politics. You'll be able to hear the full interviews with Xander, Lloyd Melville and Emma Ruddick and I promise they are all well worth a listen. So keep an eye out for that dropping on Tuesday. Rachel, I'm sure, like me, you've sat through council or committee meetings that run early in the morning or late into the evening or different days. I've wondered myself in the past how people with families or other work commitments can possibly dedicate that time to you know, sit through a massive budget meeting, plus all the preparation that it takes to, to really do the job properly. Does Ander have a point about politics needing to change to be more accessible, do you think? He perhaps does. It's very sad to hear that he he's thinking of standing down. But yes, it, there have been times where I've covered council meetings as a journalist and you are in there first thing and it goes on and on and on and you're still there late into the night and there's still decisions to be made and there's still things on the agenda that haven't been touched yet. And so that is a lot of work to ask councillors to then do and then expect them to still have that sort of life balance of um, juggling another job if they have to and juggling a family as well. So yeah, it's a very uh, good point that he makes there, I think. Yes, it's a lot of work that councillors need to do and perhaps general public are not maybe aware of just how much work goes into that role, which is not expected to be a full-time job at times. We heard there about councillors standing down at this election, uh, but we've also been looking about what's going to happen for those who are staying on. It's been a rough week for local authorities, with Dundee City Council announcing a two, uh, well, a draft budget um, with a 2.9% council tax rise. The ruling in SNP administration says that money will be spent on tackling poverty and supporting mental health services. Rachel, I believe there's been an even worse situation being discussed for Perth and Kinross Council. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so Perth and Kinross needs to make £4.5 million worth of cuts. Um, so they discussed what they could do earlier this week um, to find these savings. Now, often when it comes to budgets and budget cuts, there's just a lot of numbers on the page. Um, but if you actually look at what's going to be affected, it does become very, very real. Um, one of the big things um, in Perthshire that they're looking at is cutting the all remaining lollipop men and women outside schools. Um, that could save £179,000, they're saying. And they're justifying this move because... They say it's the parents' responsibility to get their children to and from school safely. Now, I think this is a very interesting statement. It, it sort of lays bare the impact that these cuts will have because all of the impacts are going to have to make people a lot more self-reliant. And that's really the flavour of what all these cuts are going to look like. Um, some of the other cuts are um, cutting primary school swimming lessons. Um, there's actually no legal requirement for councils to provide swimming lessons for primary school aged children but many argue that if you're a family on a low income <clears throat> or if you live in a rural part of Perthshire which um, that's quite a large chunk of the area, of the council area and um, they really rely on these in-school lessons. I mean I know myself as a child in Perth going to school swimming lessons there were some people in my class where that was the only swimming lesson that they ever had was the one that the schools sent them to. Um, so other things could be scrapping the supply teacher budget so that would mean that if your teacher is off sick one day the school would need to be responsible for covering that class rather than relying on a supply teacher being provided for them um they're also looking to cut maybe six teachers from the primary school and again there's like 600 teachers in Perth and Ross so six doesn't sound like a lot but then if that's your teacher in your kid's school all of a sudden it's a very 
big and very real impact. And there's a whole lot of other things, um, closing public toilets, less grass cutting in the summer, um, less upkeep of play parks, hiking up the price of after-school clubs. And um, once very, um, very relevant for today, I'm sitting in Perth right now and outside my window, it is a blanket of snow. It's very, very pretty. But a lot of the cuts they're talking about are around the winter maintenance budget. So that would include cutting gritting schedules, having no breakdown cover if a gritter breaks down, um, getting rid of out-of-hours footpath um, treatments. Um, so yeah, I think that's very, very relevant today when it's snowing outside to talk about cuts to the winter maintenance budget. I mean, it's, it's pretty depressing really, isn't it? When you, when you look at the full extent of what's being discussed there, um, you do wonder what on earth is going to be left to cut next year if they're going to have to be further savings made? I mean, at the point when you're cutting, gritting and crossing guards and, and, and things that you think are pretty fundamental to getting kids to school safely, it's pretty worrying. Um, I should say that that's, they're all things that are being considered at the moment. They've been put forward as possible savings. Um, it'll be up to councillors, I suppose, what, which of those get voted through and, and what they decide to do ultimately to make those savings that they need to make. Callum, we've seen the council tax freeze lifted for the first time under the SNP for next year. Just how bad are things looking for councils across Scotland right now? Well, they're bad, Derek, but I mean, that that discussion, the, the examples Rachel was just given and the, the points you just made, I remember people talking about that back in kind of 2008, 2009. It's been an almost annual thing. And that, I mean, that, I suppose, shows how bad things are that this has been year on year for over a decade now really that councils have been pared back. I think some of the warnings 10 years ago must have been exaggerated because we're still here um, having the same discussions and I would say as well that I've noticed in the past that councils quite often highlight some pretty shocking things that they might have to do um, in order for the councillors to then kind of swoop in on the day and save not do the most controversial things uh, and and don't look like such bad guys. But yeah, it's a serious situation and it's important as well, put in the context of the whole cost of living crisis, um, you know, everything's going up, energy bills are going up and council tax bills are going to be going up as well and it's just um, people are being squeezed left, right and centre and it's, it's going to have a huge impact and, uh, you know, people are going to struggle and there'll be political consequences as a, as a result, you know, people are going to be angry and frustrated. I have a sense this is going to be something we come back to time and time again as we as we move forward towards May's election. Um, but I think that's about all for this week. Um, just time to thank Rachel and Callum, our producer Morvan, and of course you for listening at home. We'll be back next week with more, and of course that special episode on Tuesday. But until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands, so you can be better briefed. The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson Media, bringing together political journalists and commentators from all over the country so that you can be better briefed. Teams at The Courier, The Press and Journal, The Evening Telegraph, Evening Express and The Sunday Post work hard day and night, online, in print and beyond, to bring you careful reporting and analysis designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, in Westminster and in our communities. So you don't miss an episode, follow The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know folk like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune into The Stushy or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook.
You can get a free month of unlimited access to The Courier or The Press and Journal too. Just go to thecourier.co.uk slash subscribe or pressandjournal.co.uk slash subscribe or follow the links in the episode notes to be better briefed. Check the episode notes for details and terms.